All right, so today I'm going to talk about figuring out forgiveness. And the reason it says figuring out is because I am figuring it out. <laughs> and I suspect many of us are. Recently, I went on a course. Um, I'm in seminary, and I took a course on forgiveness and reconciliation, which was a week long, 40 hours, taught by a man named David Goretzky, who's the, I want to get this right, vice president of the event, vice president and theologian in-house, or in-house theologian for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. He was also a prof at Briarcrest Seminary for many, many years, I think over 30 years. And he taught this course for 20 of those years and is quite an expert at it. And what is so beautiful about the way he shares it is he doesn't just teach as this heavy theologian with all these big ideas that no one can understand, but he really brings what he teaches down to earth and makes it practical and challenging. And I know my life and my thinking was changed through this course and a lot of things fell into place and I now have to live out some of that stuff and hope that it falls in place even more. And so I approached Brenda and said, hey, I kind of have all these thoughts going through my head and it's been really interesting, it's really challenged me. Um, but as usual, I haven't figured it all out, <laughs> which I never do. And I often find myself up here, when I am up here, saying, I am figuring this out, so let's figure it out together. So I'm going to share some things that I was inspired by and some things I was challenged by. Um, and hopefully you can take from that whatever you get out of it and whatever is relevant to you. And if there's things that poke you and prod you, then, yeah, I'm sure Keith and myself and other people here, um, the various leaders and teachers, would love to talk about those things because it's a tough topic. Um, but it's such a vital and, I don't know, it's like foundational to our faith and it's foundational to being a human being and trying to do that well. So we're going to dig into forgiveness today. And the reason I put the subtitle Rhythms of Reconciliation is that Forgiveness is our topic today, but as you see, there's kind of this sort of like side topic, or maybe it's the main topic, actually, that um, the whole purpose of forgiveness is reconciliation. And I think one thing that I've learned and one thing I'm wrestling with is like I've kind of gotten those out of proportion. And what we learned over the week of the course was we're, we can get so tied up in forgiveness, <laughs> sometimes reconciliation just kind of gets kind of shoved aside. Um, so we're going to learn um, why that happens and what we can do about that. So I'm going to start with a couple of statements. The first one is, our gospel does not focus nearly enough on forgiveness, which might be a little confusing for some, but yes. And the reason our is in brackets is that I'm not going to assume that the gospel I'm living and I'm sharing and hoping I'm sharing with the people around me, I can't assume that's always exactly the gospel God intended. <laughs> I hope it is, and I try to get really close. But that's why I put R, because I, at least, don't always know if I've got everything right. I'm sure I don't, but I keep trying. So our gospel does not focus nearly enough on forgiveness. And the second statement is, our gospel focuses way too much on forgiveness. <laughs> so that's where we're going to start, with that very confusing set of statements. So what is going on with that? Why the contradiction? Why start off with something so confusing? Um, and the first part of that statement, our gospel does not focus nearly enough on forgiveness, is um, kind of going to be explained by taking a look at the various models of forgiveness that we have going on in the world around us. And in the next slide, you'll see some of those. And I am not picking on any of these people. For all I know, there are followers of them in here. And that's not really the point. The point is to say that all of us can have wrong ideas about 
the Christian model of forgiveness, what Jesus intended. And what I'm contrasting here is some of the secular or models that are very popular in our contemporary world. And some of these people who are, you know, have a lot of followers and sell a lot of books and write a lot and are very knowledgeable and wise people, they have their own ideas of forgiveness. And they spread those. And we, you know, listen to them and buy into them and are influenced by them. So the first one up there, Jonathan Lockwood, who we, I don't really know him, but he was an executive um, in the Silicon Valley. He made his millions, very influential probably worked really hard, and then he realized, wait, my work-life balance is out of whack. So he went off and started writing some books, and he's now called the, I, have, I wrote it down here, the modern-day philosopher of happiness. That's the catchphrase used to describe him. So he said that forgive others not because they deserve forgiveness, but because we deserve peace. Second quote from Joel Osteen, a well-known American pastor and televangelist, says, Forgive the people that hurt you. God will pay you back with double the joy, double the victory. And Brene Brown, whom I read her books and I really appreciate, she's a really valid PhD in social work and she does a lot of research into human relationships. She's quite popular right now and writing a lot of really impactful, valuable books. Her perspective on forgiveness is that it is... Not to be altruistic, which just means like, you know, benefit, benefiting others, like something you give up. That's what altruism is about, is uh, kind of sacrificing yourself. So forgiveness is not about that. It is the best form of self-interest. And Tony Robbins, a famous entrepreneur and philanthropist, describes forgiveness as a gift we give ourselves. And Oprah suggests that forgiveness is about giving up the hope that the past could have been any different. It's accepting the past for what it was and using this moment and this time to move yourself forward. And again, I'm not picking on these people. I think that as we read those quotes, truth resonates, right? Like there's things in there that we think, yeah, of course, that's right. That, that um, connects with my heart, that connects with my mind. But if you look at all those quotes together, is there anything anyone can identify as maybe a running theme? Shall, just shut it out, if you want. Yeah, there's a self-interest or a self-focus, and I won't assume all those people are selfish, but what they're reflecting is our very common individualistic, I know Keith uses the term radical individualism in our culture, that, you know, me, myself, and I, it's, it's what I need, it's all about me, it's what's going to propel me forward, I need to figure this stuff out. And unfortunately, the challenge with that is that really influences us as Christians, you know, as we're trying to be like Jesus, who was actually, it's like opposite world. <laughs> Jesus always wants to spin everything upside down, and he makes it all about giving up the self and sacrificing the self, as he did. And so it can be really hard for us to discern when messages like this are bombarding us, and, you know, we're reading books, and we're appreciating a lot of the wisdom that comes from people who are influential, we don't want to throw it all out because it is good, but at the same time, we need to be able to discern what's another message that's going on here that I have to be careful of, and I have to be careful how it's shaping me, and I have to be careful how it's influencing my thoughts as I read the scriptures and as I dig into the gospel and what it's all about. Um, and I would suggest, and in our course, a lot of us were agreeing from different churches across Canada and the United States that we're seeing this pattern kind of become more and more influential in the way we're living out forgiveness and living out the gospel in our evangelical churches. And that's not wanting to condemn anyone, you know. I'm just owning that I'm struggling with this and I'm buying into some of this. 
And it's affecting the way I parent, it's affecting the way I relate to my husband, it's affecting the way I relate in this city and in my community and with different people in my community. Um, and I just want to own that. So if that's where you're at, own it, <laughs> and we'll learn about it today. If you don't find yourself there, then that's awesome too. <laughs> and you can just listen along and uh, learn together. And if the gospel was all about relationships and all about the transactional exchange between one person or one group and another, the, and most importantly between God and people, then how can we possibly have what I put up there is too much forgiveness? I don't know if we can go back to that, but I also said that the God, we have too much of a focus on forgiveness in our gospel, which was the second statement. And what I came to realize during the course and have tried to realize throughout my life is that, and David Grusky was you know, pounding this home to us and really helping us own it, is that sometimes we focus so much on that wrong model of forgiveness, more the selfish model of forgiveness, and sort of replace it with Jesus' others-focused and relational focus on forgiveness, that I then start living and sharing the gospel that way, and I'm actually doing a disservice. And so that's why I also said, you know, on the one hand, we don't have enough of the right model of or right idea of forgiveness in our heads, but we're also sharing too much of this wrong model and just too much of a focus on that transaction or that, you know, what I get out of forgiveness on me. And so there's a distortion. And as you might, I, I often do this where I'm always a wary of binaries. <laughs> we have to be careful not to go too far into either end of that spectrum and kind of come back and go, wait a minute. What is the role of forgiveness, and what is my role in working that out in this world? So there's a few dangers of this kind of distorted perception of forgiveness, and one of those is pluralism. You can go to the next slide. There's multiple perspectives on any given issue. We all know that. We're all, some, most of us are on social media, and we get bombarded with lots of different issues on lots of different things. And it's become very common to hear people say, well, you know, there's lots of perspectives on that. Everyone has their own opinion and those kinds of words. And that can be true. Again, there's always a shade of truth in these things. We don't want to get extremist. You might hear things like, well, there, I know my husband likes this one. There's your version, there's my version, and then there's the truth. Which is kind of just pointing out that, you know, I think I'm right, you think you're right, but there's probably a truth somewhere in there. We find it too difficult to figure out the right and the wrong, and we feel like it would be judgmental or moralistic to try to figure out the morality of others. We have a great hesitancy to speak to someone that, about being in the wrong, um, let alone committing sin. We don't want to talk about that. And this causes our understanding of forgiveness to become hazy. Another way this shows up is not wanting to take sides. You know, that's just, it's just really common that people are like, I can't take sides. That would be wrong. I can't. It's not my business. You know, I don't have a right. And we use the old log in the eye and the speck in the other person's eye kind of to justify this idea that we have to, like, hold back and not dig into the nitty-gritty of something. Um, and the challenge to all that is, like, that's actually not what Jesus said. Jesus actually did dig in. <laughs> he actually did differentiate between sin. He actually did some judging, and he did some convicting. He knew how to do it really well <laughs> and a little less messy than we do. He um, had that grace of God. Um, but when we do it, it gets us into trouble. Um, and I get into trouble when I wade into this territory. And yet we're not, you know, why would we need the gospel if we could live this way? Why would we need the gospel if there was no difference between our behavior um, or differentiating sin. Um, so it's really challenging today to figure that out. A second challenge or a second problem 
with this model of forgiveness, these two models or these two statements about forgiveness is that we really value tolerance. I mean, we're, most of us are Canadians. Um, and if you're not Canadian and you've been living here for a while <laughs> from another country, you'll figure out Canadians are really about their tolerance. We really, it's a value we hold. And again, it's a good value. There's a lot of truth to having that as a value. However, it can go too far and hinder us um, in some ways. All perspectives are equally acceptable and valuable. Ideological views of tolerance bombard us, but especially in higher education. And you know, sometimes this actually, one thing that's really interesting is there's this bombardment. I've been accused of being a, what is it that I get thrown at me? A social justice warrior. I've had that like used as a swear word against me so many times. But I'm kind of like, well, I have to own that because I kind of am. But the problem is that when, you know, when we swing that way, when we're all about kind of telling people how to be more tolerant, the backlash, which we're actually seeing now in our countries and in our, in our politics around the world, is that people are like, don't you tell me to be tolerant. So we get this post-pluralism, then people want to swing to extreme beliefs to resist that pressure to be tolerant. I just find it fascinating that both of those are happening, and they're happening in our churches, they're happening in our communities, they're happening in our city, and we're seeing that playing out in our newspapers and in lots of things going on in our city. Um, people feel threatened when you tell them to give up their space and be more tolerant, and so then they swing the other way. Both aren't great. And the final one is individualism, radical individualism, as we've mentioned. It's my life, it's my problem, a hyper-privatization. Forgiveness becomes necessary only when our private lives become public. Then it's used as a tool to keep the private separated from the public. This often happens through a public apology, which many of us have seen, where the politician or the movie star, we saw this really recently with the me, um, the movement, it's bl I'm blanking out on it right now, the, the Me Too movement, thank you, where you know these, these people's sins against women and heinous, ongoing, you know, decade-long um, abuse of women, you know, came out, and then you saw all this scrambling, like, oh, it wasn't that often, or oh, I'm really sorry, but, or the, if they feel that way, then I'm sorry for that. I <laughs> love that one. If they feel like I've hurt them, I'm sorry. Um, and again, those are dismissals. It's a way of saying, yeah, I messed up in private, so publicly I'm going to give an apology, and that will kind of wipe it all away. Forgiveness becomes, oops, sorry, I skipped up to the wrong one. Um, forgiveness is what you ask for publicly when you get caught doing something wrong in private. We see this in churches. Bill Hybels got himself into some trouble recently, um, finding out it was going on for years. Again, like, I read his books. His books shaped me, um, helped me become a better disciple, and then I find out that he was pressuring women behind the scenes in the church and in his ministry, and it just feels so gross. And he has still what many would say, has not given a healthy or a full apology. And it's really hard to hold that as a woman and as someone who claims to be a Christian and as a person in the church. It's hard. It's painful to see that happening and how it hurts um, our testimony, but also hurts women and actually causes women to not want to be part of the church. So big implications for all these different types of um, not doing um, the influences of not doing forgiveness well. Evidence from evangelical culture and from some of the more significant church and ministry scandals that has played out on the world stage suggests that these three, three cheap versions of forgiveness permeate evangelicalism. So this isn't just me claiming it, but I also have to be honest here and say I do those things. <laughs> like I, I totally buy into them, and I think that's where my figuring out forgiveness title comes from, is like, it really sucks that I do, <laughs> and I don't want to, but at the same time, without even thinking about it, I'll fall into these patterns. 
and I want to change it. Now that I've recognized it, I, I want to do better. So what can we do about this? You know, we see the implications of this stuff. Um, we see the influence on the world stage, in our cities, in our communities, in our lives, in our individual relationships. So, you know, what can we change? And one of the people who did try to change this in his time was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was alive during the Nazi occupation of Germany. He's a German pastor and theologian. Um, just wrote a lot. Some of his stuff's hard to read, so I have adapted the quote that I'm sharing from him because just to put it into more... I mean, it's super hard to understand, but just to make it a little easier, this is a paraphrase of his stuff. And on slide 10, there's a quote from him. Cheap forgiveness means forgiveness sold on the market. Forgiveness is represented as... And this is like a guy who wrote, you know, learned, did, like, worked out his theology under Hitler. So we're going to guess he knows a little bit about forgiveness. You know, I just can't imagine to be... I mean, there's lots of atrocities going on right now, but that one just stands out as trying to be a pastor theologian in Germany under Hitler. Like, we know the church messed up and compromised. And yet this man, just to give you a little... Hitler, a little peek into his life, is like he stood against that. And he, he did, and he was um, um, persecuted because of it. Sorry, back to what I was saying. Cheap forgiveness means forgiveness sold on the market. Forgiveness is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Forgiveness without price, forgiveness without cost. Forgiveness, we suppose, this is Bonhoeffer continued, forgiveness, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, Jesus dying on the cross, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would forgiveness be if it were not cheap? And he's, like, he's a deep guy, but basically what he's saying here is sometimes us evangelicals kind of you can almost end up taking Jesus for granted because he did so much. And none of us can really imagine, you know, being crucified and dying for the sins of the world. Like, it's almost so beyond our scope of understanding, and we kind of blanket it with this massive value. We can almost feel like there's, like, an endless bank account full of forgiveness there because it was such a big thing to do. And that's what he's trying to get at, that the influence of that can be that we, in a weird way, cheapen it because we make it so easily available. And the reason we want it to be easily available is because we believe people get you know, freed from their sin and get to go to heaven when they receive forgiveness from Jesus. And again, that's a good thing. But you know, what does that say when we say, you know, just, just kneel down at the cross and say your sinner's prayer and then go on your merry way, you're in the kingdom of her, you're in, you're in heaven, or you, you've got, um, David Gretzky often would say, their ticket to heaven, um, you know. We never want to look at it and oversimplify it that much, but I know I have been guilty of kind of buying into that way of thinking of forgiveness as cheap and cheapening it in some of my perceptions and the way I've shared it. And I'm not being condemning, I'm just owning that that's a problem. Bonhoeffer recognized that these cheap versions don't cost much. Therefore, they might be easier to extend to the world as a version of the gospel. On the one hand, they provide a familiar, comfortable form of forgiveness, like those ones from the quotes we read at the beginning. It's familiar, it's comfortable, we recognize it, so we want to offer that to people and make it easier for them to grapple with what Jesus did. It's a comfortable form of forgiveness that people seeking the truth about Jesus might easily be able to swallow. It didn't, they, they don't cost much in terms of the kind of inner and outer change that it might require for conversion to Jesus' ways and living out his gospel message. 
So what's the harm? I mean, isn't it better that there's this easy way to experience forgiveness and get into Christianity and follow Jesus? Like, don't we want to make that easier for people? Well, the harm is that if someone gets something, like when I get a discount <laughs> on something I buy, I'm usually not going to value it as much. And I'm usually not going to work too hard to take care of it, or I might be tempted to do that if I don't realize or own the sacrifice or what it took you know, to purchase that thing. So I hope that's connecting with you, and we'll dig into a little more. When most of us think of the gospel, one of the primary words that comes to mind is forgiveness. And I've got this little diagram here that um, I'm hoping can help you guys dig into this a little more or grasp it a little better. When it comes to living out and sharing the gospel, you know, if you picture an umbrella, which I think is here, you can't really see it well. I should have used a brighter font. But on the top of the umbrella, it kind of says forgiveness. And I know for me, this is kind of how I understood the gospel, right? It's about forgiveness. It's about getting forgiven for my sin. Totally. And then underneath that, you know, in working out that forgiveness or in living that forgiveness, I am accepting of others. I'm, I live sacrificially. I don't judge. I don't take sides. I reconcile. I live forgiveness patterns in my life. I tolerate. I love my neighbor. A lot of these come right out of the scriptures. And again, so easy to buy into. But I'd like to use a different model. Um, the next one, you know, if we're thinking of the gospel as the good news, um, the point of it is not necessarily forgiveness. It's one part of it. What it's really about is reconciliation. And if it's all about reconciliation, then we have to find where forgiveness fits in that process of reconciliation. And instead of it being all about forgiveness and about how forgiveness helps me, as I've tried to demonstrate to you this morning, and what it does for me and how it helps my life and how it fixes things for me so that I can live out my radical individualism a little better, um, the challenge is then, what does it mean if forgiveness is just one part of a much bigger process and a much more radical and world-changing process? Um, and that's kind of the nutshell of what I was being challenged by um, in the week that I took this course and, and, and all the reading and what I've been doing since. And it's still challenging me, and I s still am wrestling to get it. But if reconciliation is the umbrella, then all of those other things fall into reconciliation. Forgiveness being one of them. Forgetting wrongs, discerning wrongs, resisting sin, forgiveness, loving neighbors, loving enemies. The scriptures are full of this stuff. And forgiveness is part of it. It's not um, the easy-peasy way to be able to access all of them. And sometimes, you know, we can be resisting sin and we can be trying to discern the wrongs of someone else and we haven't actually done forgiveness yet. We actually shouldn't work out our forgiveness until we figured out some of these other things. How to forbear with someone who is sinful. How to love a neighbor who keeps, you know, knocking down our fence or screaming at our children. <laughs> um, as Christians, to give you an example, we might think, oh, I just need to be forgiving them in my heart. I just need to let it go. And the consequence of that is that we put this pressure on us and we put this shame on us that, like, shame on me for not being able to forgive them. Shame on me for not just being a good Christian and living out forgiveness. Well, actually, if they're screaming at my children, they're actually not doing something that's okay, and I need to challenge them on that, and I need to talk about it, and I need to enter into a dynamic with them that challenges me not just to give blanket forgiveness, but to figure out what is going on here. What is the sin? What is the offense? And how now do I wrestle with all this other stuff, including forgiveness, 
as I try to live out reconciliation. That's what I'm finding so challenging. I'd rather just forgive them and try to live with it and live sacrificially and die to self. But actually, that won't help my neighbor learn the gospel and figure out what it's about. That won't help my neighbor understand what Jesus was doing on the cross. Because Jesus wasn't just forgiving everyone. He was building a bridge of reconciliation to God. One that includes forgiveness, but it also includes my neighbor learning he shouldn't scream at my children. <laughs> I don't have any neighbors to scream at my children. I live way out in the country. You can't even see my neighbors. Although I'm moving to town pretty soon, and I'm a little like, I'm going to have to figure out all this stuff a lot more. <laughs> my husband always says, good fences make good neighbors. And we have really nice fences around our new house. But I am like, I do want to figure out how to get to know my neighbors. So I will be putting this into practice. So let's, let's just look at a few more little patterns of how this can kind of settle in our minds. Because I know it's a lot to try to figure out. The word, one of the th reasons why this model is hard to grasp, and we want to revert back to the other umbrella with forgiveness over top, is because the word forgiveness has, like I showed in some of those quotes earlier, we use it in ways it was not really intended, or we use it in ways that are not really true to what forgiveness means. And again, I just feel like I'm standing up here telling you all my convictions, but I do this all the time. I use forgiveness in the wrong way. And in the next slide, we can see that forgiveness becomes, oops, it's supposed to be a quote around cheap. Forgiveness becomes cheapened when we use it in ambiguous ways. That means we make it a, mean the same as a lot of other things, like the first umbrella model. We get it mixed up with things um, that don't actually mean forgiveness. One of those, I guess, would be tolerance or acceptance um, or not taking sides. Like we take forgiveness and we kind of, rep like we use it synonymously, which means the same way, as all those other things. But it actually doesn't mean all those other things. But we've become so used to using it that way. Oh, just forgive. Or, oh, yeah, i got to forgive my heart. We j it's just like so easily rolls off our tongue and rolls through our hearts and minds to do that. But the consequence is that is it, it makes the gospel hazy. Well, I suggest it makes the gospel hazy. It makes the gospel really messy in our minds when we do this because all of a sudden it's kind of like, what's going on? What, what point does forgiveness have meaning in the gospel? The second thing it does is it isolates forgiveness and removes it from the larger biblical purpose of reconciliation, which is kind of what I was trying to show in the umbrella. It's really hard to get a good model about this stuff because it's so big. But if we take forgiveness and just kind of throw it in the scriptures here and there and like try to like pull out certain stories to make a point, it's really hard to understand its role in the big picture of the, what God was doing when he want, you know, set in motion his purposes to reconcile us to him. And if we can't figure that out... What are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing in our churches if we can't figure out how to do that? And again, I'm speaking to myself. I mean, I'm assuming a lot of you are, <laughs> are doing reconciliation really well. But I find it hard to figure out how to do it right when I, when I make the whole system messy and when I don't completely understand God's plan and, and how he works this out. And that leads to number three, confusion. The third consequence is um, that the larger significance of reconciliation in the great scheme of things, we get confused of, like, why were there Israelites, and what were they about, and, you know, why did Jesus come at that time, and why didn't he just do it this way? One person in my class was like, well, why is it taking 2,000 years to figure all this out? <laughs> and that's an awesome question. 
And if it was just all about blanket forgiveness, why didn't that just happen the day of the, Jesus died on the cross? Why do all these people have to keep being born and keep dying if it were just about getting forgiveness? Couldn't, didn't he just do that already? And can't we just like accept it and move on? So that kind of gives you an indication there's something bigger at play. Um, but it, it's, it's tricky to understand. Ultimately, we start to see forgiveness as a means to an end. The end being fellowship or peace. Sorry. Ultimately, forgiveness is a means to an end. It's, the end is peace or what the Bible might call shalom. It's like the, if you um, just picture the most, you know, when everything is right in the world, when everything in your life, every relationship, every thought you have, every murmur of your heart is peace. That's shalom. And it's a beautiful Hebrew word that... That was the intention for God and, you know, as human beings living in the world. We were supposed to be in that state all the time. We were supposed to kind of be living in God's beautiful creation, the Garden of Eden. If any of you are familiar with that story in the scriptures, it's quite idyllic at the start of creation. There's this beautiful setting. Everything's in harmony. People don't even have to struggle to eat. God just puts fruit on the trees and it just gets plucked and eaten. It probably tastes awesome. The animals are at peace. The lion is walking with the laying with the lamb. It's all good. And people are walking around naked and there's no black flies like... Yesterday, oh my gosh, <laughs> I have to apologize to all our guests because the black flies, I don't know if they were like that everywhere, but we were eating them, we were getting them in our eyeballs, we were, Kendra and I were trying to cut a cake, my friend, and we both were like, ow, 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 and we're just like, this is torture. So the opposite of Shalom is Thunder Bay in June <laughs> when you are trying to fish or go camping or it's like torturous. Um, so imagine camping in Thunder Bay or Northwestern Ontario with no black flies and the sun is shining, the perfect temperature at all times and there's no, the waves are going with you when you go out in your canoe and they're coming with you when you come back in your canoe. That's the shalom God intended. And unfortunately that got broken because people were like, hmm, I'm not sure this is enough for me. I want to see how I can do it on my own. And we called that the fall. It's when people chose to say, hmm, I think I could figure out something better. And, you know, Adam and Eve, the characters in the, script, the biblical story, did choose that. They did try to go their own way, and they broke something. It's like they rejected that beautiful picture, and we can get into a lot of other theological issues around that, but that's basically what happened was a rejection, a breaking of the relationship. And as we, you know, we're born, and as we age, we kind of replicate that breaking in our lives. And so we come to... For me, at 19 years old, I was introduced to Christianity and heard, like, Jesus will forgive you for that breaking, for that broken relationship, you know, um, say the prayer and, you know, be, come back to God. Restore that relationship through the cross. And I did that, and then I went on to learn, oh, my life didn't become perfect shalom after that moment when I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Why not? That was the deal, wasn't it? Well, guess what? Forgiveness was one piece. And the bigger picture was reconciliation. And, you know, I'm trying to experience more shalom in my life. I'm trying to live more shalom and more peace in my relationships. But I'm not doing an awesome job sometimes. And some people might say a lot of the time. And the reason is because I have to now work out my reconciliation with God. And um, that's the tough part. So anyway, I went off script. I don't know where I am. Let's get back on track here. Oh, a scripture. This will help us a lot. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. 
what is it that should compel us to try to dig into this hard stuff? What is it that should try to help us figure out how to have a right idea of forgiveness and how to see where forgiveness fits in the bigger picture of reconciliation? Paul tells us in this verse, for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, <clears throat> but for him who died for them and was raised again. And I know that can feel like a little complicated language, but what he's getting at here is this is what it's about. It's because he came and he died and he worked out part of God's you know, plan of reconciliation because of love because he loved so much, because he poured out that love and he lived that love as Jesus in the world. And so because of him, but for him, you know, we should do the same. So from now on, regard no one from a worldly point of view. And I would suggest that some of our ideas about forgiveness and some from those wise experts that I showed at the beginning, those are our worldly points of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. That's like my favorite verse in the whole Bible, just so you know. <laughs> All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, not forgiveness. Interesting. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Amazing. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who has no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there's a whole lot of stuff packed in there. But what I think is so beautiful is it really brings out, you know, I think this is the gospel. A lot of people turn to John 3.16, and that is true. But I think if you really want a fuller idea of what the gospel is, this verse really provides it for us in beautiful language. So what is supposed to motivate our forgiveness and ultimately our reconciliation? I want a Sunday school answer here, people. Love. Yeah, love. Love, the love of God and our desire to love him back by fulfilling. He's given us this thing, this responsibility, the gospel responsibility to live this now. If he's done this and we believe it and we buy it, then how do we live it? How do we show people that he died so that we could access God again and repair that brokenness? It's a pretty heady responsibility, but it's a beautiful honor to be part of it. And again, emphasizing that phrase, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. Old things have gone, and look, everything has become new. In some of your translations, if anyone's following along on their phone or in a book, or if you go home and read this later, which I hope you do, you may find that your translation um, puts an individualistic spin on this. And that can be a little confusing. And the reason is that when the King James Version a long time ago was made, they tried to make the scripture easier. Because it's like kind of hard to understand this stuff. It's pretty big. So they put in personal pronouns. I think they put he or they used individual pronouns, um, thinking it would make it just easier for people to get. But... Um, that didn't, you know, it's, that wasn't in line necessarily with what the message, the more broad message that everything is made new. It's not just me, my individualism that's made new. It's everything. It's the whole creation. God wants all of his, you know, this entire world and the heavens to experience shalom. And that's possible. So just, that's just a little side note, because if you get a little confused when you go home and read that, depending on what version you have. Um, more recent versions, um, scholars are starting to, the TNIV and the NRSV, or, I think, 
have it in the uh, more corporate form, um, not so individualistic. N.T. Wright writes a beautiful little um, commentary in his um, book, Paul for Everyone, about this verse. Really beautiful. The logic of love outweighs all other logic known to the human race. That sense of a love which changes everything and gives people the power to face things and do things they wouldn't otherwise have done, like me, is what Paul is talking about in this passage. The gospel is not just a mechanism for getting people saved, cheap forgiveness. It is the announcement of a love that has changed the world, a love that therefore takes the people who find themselves loved like this and sends them off to live and work in a totally new way. And what I want to get at just as we close here is, what is this new way and what do I do about it <laughs> and what do I do with it? Throughout scriptures, there's this talk of old and new. Um, and when old and new is used in the scriptures, it's often, as I mentioned from the passage in Corinthians, it's talking about the cosmic perspective. Yes, it's about me as an individual changing from my old, you know, kind of nasty self and wanting to be a new self in Christ. Yes, it's about that. But it's also about all of us doing that and our whole creation doing that and our communities doing that and our country which has some very broken relationships. As we see in this city, and as we see across our nation, there's a lot of, I'm just thinking of the missing and murdered women inquiry that came out, and honestly, I can hardly listen to the news when I hear people arguing about the semantics of whether genocide was the right word, and I'm like, did you read the document? Did you read the testimonies? Did you actually dig into that? Sorry, I'm not gonna go off on a little social justice warrior rant, but my heart breaks when I read that, or when I hear that and I see people getting caught up in the semantics, and I'm like, Canadian people, please just read. <laughs> read what the families of these women say, and maybe you'll just let go of arguing whether or not a certain word was the right one or not, and you'll actually realize we've got some work to do on reconciling this brokenness that we have. So old. Old way of doing things, we see it all over the place. And this new way, this reconciliatory way, Christ, God through Christ is offering. All right. I had a whole bunch of examples of that that I'm going to skip. But if you want to know what they are, come talk to me. Another, I think Keith says it all the time. Come talk to me and buy me a coffee. He says he'll buy you a coffee. You can buy me a coffee. <laughs> um, I do want to share one model as I close um, that I find helpful. I don't know if you'll find helpful. It came out of the course that I just had, and I've seen other people use it. Um, I'm a little nervous to share it because it's a little overwhelming, and if you're new here or you're new to this whole Christian thing or if you don't even know who Jesus is, this might be a little bit... Um, confusing, but I've used this um, teaching little 13-year-old girls at Bible camp um, how to understand what's going on in the whole of Scripture. So I think it's helpful, and if it's not, I apologize, ignore it, but find your own way to figure it out. Oh, can you go back to the one that has the lines? That's it. So just a little while ago in Corinthians, we were reading about this cosmic, beautiful thing Christ was doing on the cross, and sometimes, you know, we kind of whittle that down into being about forgiving me my personal individual sin. And um, the challenge of that is this is actually what was going on there. It had a lot more to do with things other than my personal agenda or my personal life. And I mentioned earlier the story of creation and then the fall. If you look up at the top left, that happened. And then God was left in this position of I've created this beautiful thing and now it's kind of fallen apart. What do I do? It's, of course he knew what to do because he's beyond time. But from our perspective, it can be like God came up with some options of how to solve the problem of restoring the brokenness. He sent a people called Israel, <laughs> or he sent a man called Israel, and they, he led the people called the Israelites. And they, you know, 
started different systems and they had a sacrificial system where they sacrificed animals in place, all in trying to reconcile themselves. Um, and I want to be careful not to get too complicated, but there were systems in place to try to repair the brokenness of the relationship. And they tried to work that out for a while, but unfortunately they didn't always do a great job at that. And so Christ arrives on the scene, and we do have the death and resurrection, um, crucifixion of Christ there. And at that point, Jesus says something really interesting over and over and over again. He says, the kingdom is here, the kingdom has come. Repent, for the kingdom is here. And others around him say it. And it's kind of like, what is he talking about, this kingdom? And the people around him were like, oh, he's going to fix everything. He's going to make our lives good. He's going to fix all these human problems and get rid of these Romans that are oppressing us. But actually, Christ was coming to bring in a whole spiritual kingdom and to restore the brokenness and to bring back that shalom. And he said, I am the shalom. And if you read Jesus' life, he's shalom. He's walking, breathing, living shalom. Beautiful peace-filled, fighting justice, restoring relationships, um, you know, healing people. He lives shalom, you know, right in front of the people. And he did that, and he said, I'm doing this to show you the kingdom. I'm doing this to show you that God has this new thing he wants to give. He wants to restore this creation he intended. And, you know, he set that trajectory. That's the upper line. However, as the scriptures repeatedly say, we're still in the old. <laughs> like, why couldn't we all just end it then? Like I said, some of us ask that. It's because we still had to work it out. We, you know, it was almost too easy. He want, God gave us this choice to kind of wrestle with it and buy into the kingdom and choose to go on that upper trajectory. But the tough thing is, I know for me, it's kind of comfortable to do the old thing. It's kind of easier to buy into the cheap forgiveness. And I kind of am tempted to stay on the old passing away road. And when we read in the scriptures, especially in Paul, with this old person and this new person and this wrestling between the two and not being able to get it right, it's like we're caught in between. I put there the Christian work of reconciliation goes on in this liminal space. A liminal space is a space we live in where there's immense potential for transformation, but we're kind of stuck in the physical, we're limited <laughs> to the physical, very worldly, human aspects of the space. So we're caught in this and we can tap into and become Christians and, and envelop the way of Christ in this space, but it's not super easy. And as we do that, we're supposed to bring others on the journey. That's, our, you know, that's what Paul is saying in Corinthians. is like, because of the love of God, help other people figure this out. Help other people join the kingdom and help other people be on the kingdom-building path. But unfortunately, yes, I want to sometimes cling to the old rocky road of the old path. So that is a very, very 13-year-old um, girl Bible, you know, Bible camp version of what's going on here and why forgiveness is just one piece of the puzzle. Yes, on this path, Christ forgave us where that cross is, but then we had to live that. <laughs> and then we had to kind of go, oh, what does that mean for me? What does it mean for my relationships? What does it mean for my brokenness? All right. So forgiveness is a signpost on the road of reconciliation with other people, creation, and God. Figuring out forgiveness is a marker of reconciliatory work rather than the work itself. So it's like driving down the whatever highway, TransCanada, you see all the green signs. Well, forgiveness is one of those signs as well as all those other things we're challenged by in the gospel. When we commit sin or have sin committed against us, we have to recognize and own the consequences of that sin 
which is a broken relationship. It might, it might be hurt feelings, which might be mine to own. It might be because of my bad habits or my poor character or my immaturity. Whatever the reason for the sin, whatever the cause, we call it enmity, which means a breaking, an ending of an aspect of the shalom in the relationship that has to be repaired. If it doesn't get repaired, it's very difficult for the relationship to continue. I would say sometimes impossible. And, um, you know, the challenge is to own that and to name it and to say that's what it is. It's a spiritual condition of distrust as the default. Sins are differentiated in the scriptures. We like to say, oh, one sin is all the same as the other. That is not biblical. You might want to <laughs> check that out, and I won't get into that right now. But the Old and New Testaments, and Jesus himself does differentiate. Some sins are worse than others. Me yelling at my husband because I'm annoyed at him is a lot different than someone kidnapping a woman and murdering her on the side of the road. And there's different consequences, and there's different, you know, there's different results that has and effects that has on reconciliation. And we need to be more honest about that and not just kind of carpet sweep and say, oh yeah, one sin's just as bad as the other, we're all equals. Um, we're all equals, but it's not true. Um, you know, being equal in value to God doesn't mean that our, all of our actions have the same consequences. Anyways, forgiveness and its roots show up 130 times in the New Testament, and it's obviously a key theme in the whole process of the gospel. Some of the variations of it are letting go, giving up, canceling, remitting, pardoning, and it's contrasted with not retaining things, letting just like this sense of leaving something behind and moving forward in a new way, which we see here. In the context of relationships, forgiveness requires that something is no longer held against someone else in a way that hinders them from seeking shalom, seeking peace, and living out that peace. Whereas sin causes a halt, I think I already said this, um, shalom and peace allow um, moving forward. However, a big catch-22 in all this is like it can never move forward in the same way. God wants to restore this creation and this world, but he doesn't want, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to look the same. It'll probably be better knowing God. He always has better things in store. But if I've broken a relationship with someone and then I, you know, we do have reconciliation and we work that out, the relationship has to look different. There has to be some kind of ownership. There has to be boundaries. Um, there might be, you know, legal boundaries. You know, just because reconciliation or forgiveness has happened and we're working on restore, restoration and reconciliation doesn't mean it's the same. We're not trying to get back to something. We're trying to figure out a new thing um, beyond the brokenness. And I just wanted to share a story. This resonates closely with me because I am living out a very broken relationship, and I have been for many years. I'm actually estranged from one of my siblings. And, you know, sitting in a class for a week and listening to this stuff, it was really convicting and really horrible. And um, I kept reliving kind of when that deep brokenness, you know, it was kind of like messy for a long time, but there was a moment of deep brokenness, which actually revolved around the death of one of my children. And, and something happened, or something was done in that moment, or at that time, that um, I could feel a breaking happening. And I could feel venom and hatred just come up in my heart and in my mind towards this sibling of mine. And it's interesting because, you know, I have to walk that now. I have to live that. I want to just be like, oh, I wish I could just be like, I oh, just forgive it and let it go. And I know that's what would be good for me but the reality is that would not help the other person in this relationship at all. Um, and what's happened for me, and one of the reasons this was so important for me to wrestle through was, I realized, oh, 
the way I live a gospel of forgiveness to this person is to keep coming to God and praying for them <laughs> and to keep coming and asking God how we get through this and to keep coming and instead of giving cheap forgiveness and them never even maybe knowing I forgave them in my heart, which is actually impossible because forgiveness is a transaction. You can't just do it one-sided. Um, you know, I now have to like <laughs> do, the, do the hard stuff. Um, and sometimes I feel like it could break me. And interestingly, and I think this was God just giving me a little pat on my shoulder as I'm listening to all this stuff the week of this course. I think it was like Thursday, one of the last days. The Professor Gorutsky shared a story, and he said, there was this woman who came to me at one of my, because he does these seminars all over the country. He's like, and she had been in a broken relationship with her sister for 40 years. And she came to me, and she said, you know, I... I just, she wasn't a very mature Christian and she, ha, you know, had difficulty speaking the language, but he just said in her innocent way, she said, I keep just asking God to let me forgive her and let it go, but he keeps not letting me when I pray. And so she kept praying. He said, well, actually, that's very scriptural because we're actually not told to forgive our enemies. We're told to pray for them. And if you look at the scriptures, um, there, you know, there's some exceptions to that which have, have a reason they're exceptions, but most of the time we're not told to forgive enemies. We're told to pray for them and love them as we would love ourselves which is a lot harder than just giving blanket forgiveness and cheap forgiveness. But this woman was wrestling through the story, and Dr. Garutsky was like, well, actually, you're doing the right thing. Because I think she wanted him to say, yeah, just forgive her. Here's the, here's the way you do that. And uh, so she went on her way, kind of sad probably, and bummed out, because it would have been easier for him to just give her the blanket answer. And then he said, sometime later, he returned to that church, and she came up to him, and she said, I have to tell you, I kept praying for my sister, and then... One day she asked me out for lunch and she came to me and she, she just laid it all out and she owned the brokenness. She owned her sin and our relationship and the offense. And she said she thought I'd be so angry at her and she thought I would just, you know, hold it against her. And I instantly was able to forgive her fully and it was completely ended. We have a restored relationship and her sister went on actually to join the church and become a Christian. And it was really interesting because the 40 years of prayer and the 40 years of wrestling through the, through the struggle... I have no doubt was why it was so easier for her to really forgive her, to really have, you know, that sense of forgiveness sweep over her. But if she had just given blanket forgiveness in her own heart, she would never have wrestled for those 40 years and prayed for her sister. Um, yeah, to me, that's just beautiful. And um, just the fact that she was willing to sacrifice in that unease for that long. It's hard to live in broken relationship. Um, it's ugly and it's painful and it makes you go on your knees to God all the time. But she loved her sister through that. She loved her enemy um, and she was restored to her almost instantly. It probably wasn't instant, but the beauty of how, the way God responded to her prayers and, and came through on his promise of reconciliation um, spoke to my heart deeply. And that's what I'm going to close on. Sorry, I was trying to wrap up, but I talked too much. Um, I just want to encourage all of you, especially the fathers here, um, if you have broken relationships or you're, you're wrestling in that space, you're wrestling in the liminal space right now and not sure what to do, don't buy into cheap forgiveness. I encourage you to dig into the scriptures and uh, look at how Jesus worked this out. Um, turn to people around you who might be able to help you work it out. And um, yeah, I fully trust God will restore it just might not be in the timing that you hope it will be, <laughs> but there is hope. And I, I was filled with hope after going through this. So thanks so much, and God bless you on this Father's Day.